0: Good morning. Didn't these guys do great? Let's give them a big hand. And I'll tell you what, while you're doing that, your guys have the greatest staff in the world. Give them a big hand. Woo! And then while you're at it, give yourself a hand because you guys are awesome and you're so good looking. Uh, I'm going to ask you, good looking church, if you would do something for me. I'd like you to pray for me. I just between you and God, just would you bow your head and just ask the Lord to anoint me and keep me out of the way? Would you do that just between you and him? And while you're doing that, if you'd like him to speak to you this morning, why don't you ask him to do that? Lord, I pray you'd reveal yourself and keep me out of the way. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Do you guys like the Chicago Bears, anybody? Do you? In 2006, the Chicago Bears were tough once again and My dad was born and raised in Chicago. I've always loved the Bears, but I'd never went to a game, never been to Soldier Field, been by it. But on my 40th birthday, my beautiful wife whisked me away. It was a Sunday. We had planted the bridge in Anderson and... After the service, she whisked me, and I love surprises, and I didn't know where we were going. I was like a kid in a candy uh, candy store. (laughs) Where are we going? And she showed me the tickets of the Bears, and I couldn't believe it. I was finally getting to go see the Bears. Now, the Bears were playing the Seattle Seahawks, and I hate the Seattle Seahawks. And for those of you who go, oh, I can't believe you used that word, let me just throw out another name for you. Uh, How about the New England Patriots? You can identify? Thank you. Thank you. Well, and it's not that I wish ill. Well, no, maybe I, no, a little. But I don't like the Seattle Seahawks, and this was the year that the Bears went to the Super Bowl, and they played the Indianapolis Colts, and the Colts won. Remember that Super Bowl? Yeah. So I was happy for Peyton to get his uh, Super Bowl ring so I wasn't crying and bitter. But something took place that was really, really cool. My wife gets these tickets. We go to the hotel room. I put on my Brian Urlacher jersey, and I and her go to the train. And we were kind of far away, so we took a lot of trains. She kept getting on one, getting off another. And what I noticed was was that the closer we got to the stadium, the more and more the train car was filled with bear jerseys. And it was so cool being in a sea of like-minded people. I knew where they stood. They loved the Bears, and I didn't know any of them, but I loved everyone. And the more we got closer, or is that even a word? The, The closer we got to the stadium, the more the sea of humanity wearing the uniforms to the point when we were walking down that final stretch All you could see was thousands of people wearing bear jerseys, and I felt so at home. It was peace. It was almost holy. And I knew that I could call on a majority of everyone there who does not even know me, and I would say, could you pay my mortgage? And they would go, yes, we will, because you're a bear fan. It united us. And I remember sitting in the stadium just drinking it all in. My wife was so great. Now, are you are going to get anything you want? You want a hot dog? I do. And so I got a, it was just awesome. I'm like a little two-year-old. She had a bib on me. And, and uh, here's what also took place. See if you've ever experienced this before. But whenever the Bears did really, really well, of course, everybody cheers. But I noticed that the more dramatic things got and the more the Bears really put it to the Seattle Seahawks, I jumped up and simultaneously hugged men that I'd never met in my life. Have you ever done that? And it wasn't like there was this awkwardness of, yeah, hey, 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 wish I'd known you a little bit better. This was a little awkward. Nope. It was just simultaneous. Boom. They were my family. Why? Because we were united, we shared the common enemy, the Seattle Seahawks. I was kind of, uh, I got to thinking about it, and I was thinking, you know, it's really kind of an amazing phenomena that I'm hugging men that I don't know, and it was okay, and how I really felt close to them and i thought you know it is it's it's not only were they for the same team but they were united against the same enemy and i started thinking about how that permeates our thinking my thinking the church all the time there is this us against them mentality and everybody, we get it naturally, um, Adam and Eve, the first humans, when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the Bible says that their eyes were opened and they saw that they were naked, and so they hid themselves from each other. They clothed themselves with leaves, and then they hid from God. Why? It's, it's more, everybody, it's more than just because they saw themselves as naked. Think about that. That term wasn't even invented until that happened, and there was shame involved. But the whole reasoning behind why nudity and their embarrassment became an issue is because what was taking place the moment they bit into that apple, or whatever it was, the Bible says their eyes were opened. They no longer filtered reality. They no longer filtered their value and worth through the almighty creator, God. Let me say that again. The moment they bit into it, their eyes were opened. No longer did they filter reality through the lens of God, nor did they find their value and their worth from the Father. Now it was on them. Their value and their worth now was in their hands, and they cast it on everybody else. Eve held the power over Adam because his value and his worth was based on what she thought of him or how he performed the work that he did. Eve, the same thing, the body image, all this kind of stuff, and now all throughout, this seismic wave washed forward through time all the way to us until this world ends, and that is we are born getting our value and our worth from our performance and what everybody else thinks. And we see ourselves, we see reality, we see everybody around us not through the lens of God, but through our eyes. We now determine what is right and wrong. We now determine who is evil, who isn't evil. We now determine who should be demonized and who shouldn't be. We are the judge and the jury and the executioner because it doesn't go through the Father anymore. And so we have this us against them view of life. I think of Facebook. Does anybody ever read Facebook? That's a love fest right there, isn't it? Do you remember reading it during the election? I, I This isn't about shaming. Everybody, I want you to understand. This is, there's no shame in this because we're all in the same boat. But I'm pointing out how we do this. That we really believe that God is behind one candidate and hates the other. We believe that God is with us on our side, and hates everybody else. And we get it because this is what happened with Adam and Eve. Watch this. This is by Jeff Turner, who wrote the book, Saints in the Arms of a Happy God. He writes concerning this. Have you ever noticed how in the Genesis story of creation, directly after being lovingly confronted by God on the matter of having eaten from a certain tree, Adam responded by making an enemy out of his wife. He threw her under the bus. The woman that you gave me, she did this. Then after being confronted by God, Eve points the finger at and made an enemy of the serpent. Jeff continues. He says, you see, whenever we feel insecure in our relationship with the Godhead, we naturally tend to find someone to make an enemy of. Why? Because so we reason in the twisted mangroves of the fallen mind. Listen to this. If God and I share an enemy, it takes the attention off of me and my shortcomings. And so we find a person or groups of persons whom we feel are worse off than us, and we imagine God to be on our side in persecuting or in hating them as well. Happens all the time. I bring up the election period because a lot of ugliness occurred, all in the name of hating and thinking that God feels the same way and ethnicities, races, people, there is this tendency to feel that God is with us and we are going after certain groups, certain sexual orientations, whatever, you name it, whoever it is that we go, it's all right because God hates them too. I want to take a look at how Jesus dealt with this issue when he was here for 30 years, but mainly his ministry for three years. Jesus begins his ministry by calling his disciples. And again, remember, the disciples never really understood anything until Jesus had was resurrected. They all thought it was going to be this earthly kingdom and they are going to have lofty positions, so their motivations were never really right. But what Jesus does is so cool is that he immerses them for the next three years in this boot camp of understanding that God doesn't hate anybody. <laughs> he is madly in love with the world. What? John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. Not Those who try hard, Methodists, Lutherans, God so loved the world. And so he demonstrates this by, first of all, asking Matthew to be his disciple. Now, I want you to, who is it that you cannot stand? Who is it that you hate? And what I mean by that is as you rejoice when bad things happen to them, you love it, you hope that they get more of it. you 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 love uh, you would like to see them gone. Who is it? And I brought up Trump and Hillary because they're polarizing people but who is it in your life that you write off, that you say, maybe they are the ones that hurt you when you were younger, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's your boss, maybe it's somebody you work with, I don't know who it is, but who is it you you loathe to be in the same room with them makes you sick? Who is it? And I want to put Matthew in that light, because Peter, James, and John, who were already on board, had the same mentality as everybody else. They hated Matthew because he was a tax collector because Matthew was a Jew who collected money from his fellow Jews for the enemy, Rome. Can you imagine having somebody who's taking money from you to give to the enemy, Rome? And not only that, he's one of you, And he's taking from you extra so that he can make some gravy on top. He's stealing from you. These people were despised. Now, I would probably be with uh, Peter, James, and John, and I'd be standing there, and Peter's probably the more vocal, and he sees Jesus heading over to Matthew sitting in his tax collector's booth. And I would think this way that, look, hey, look, he's going to go see that Tax collector. I hope he lights into him. Now remember, Adam and Eve, when God confronts them and says, Why are you hiding? they said, We were hiding because we were naked. And God asked the question, Who told you that you're naked? It wasn't God. But somehow, that tradition of learning that we're naked and then telling others that we're naked, that is part of this journey that continues the us and them or even people in our life that we just need to tell them that they're naked. And so Jesus is standing there, and Peter is hoping that Jesus tells Matthew how naked he is. This ought to be great. And then all of a sudden... He sees Matthew getting up, the person that he cannot stand the most gets up, walks by him, and goes, Hey, fellas, I guess I'm going to be a part of you guys. How would that make you feel? Jesus just asked the worst to be a part of it. In fact, let's hear what Matthew says about it himself in Matthew 9 9 through 13. Look at that, good-looking guy. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth, follow me and be my disciple. No shaming, no condemnation, Jesus said. So Matthew got up and followed him. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home. Now, remember, Matthew's writing this. Along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners, Matthew's really making a point, and I had the worst of the worst there. Yarr. Er. But when the Pharisees, the religious, saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher was with such scum? And then Jesus responds. Does he? I think he, yes. When Jesus heard this, he said, now everybody, here's the key to loving because it doesn't have anything to do with you and I trying harder. That would be a crime. If I'm up here telling us, which we all know we need to love, we all know that. You don't need this. We're going to walk out here and go, I'm going to try harder. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with this. Now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices, which means it's not about religion at all. I want you to show mercy. Now, it's really helping us to understand. It's not about trying harder. It's not, maybe if I got in a Bible study, nothing wrong with that. It's beautiful. But that isn't going to, it's already been given to us. Jesus tells us it's not about religion. It's about mercy. Paul even goes on this even further. Take a look. Am I cutting out? Let's take a look in a whatever verse it was <laughs> that we read. Let's take a look at uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 7. Paul says this, If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels but didn't love others, I would be obnoxious. A clanging gong, a noisy cymbal if I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains. I mean, guys, this is phenomenal stuff. But I didn't love others, I would be nothing. So I'm obnoxious, and I'm nothing. And if I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could brag about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. So it's not about trying harder. It's about mercy. John 3.17, God did not send his son into the world to, anybody? Condemn the world. But to save it. Let me give you an example of how we don't have to try harder. First of all, this whole tree of the knowledge of good and evil that causes us to struggle, when we look at it and we're getting our value and our worth from everybody else, we're the one that decides who's right and who's wrong, what's holy, what isn't holy. We try to cram God into that paradigm because he's now on our side feeling the same way that we are. Let me tell you, he's not. In the kingdom of heaven, there is no us against them. Jesus came and he says, I know that the reason why humanity does what they do is because of this lie. That this tree has now given them a position they were never created to handle. Miserable trying to find it on their own. I will come and I will fulfill that. And I love how he died on another tree. From that tree to this tree, Jesus says, Look, I have fulfilled everything because the only way that you found your value and your worth before was through God. And I have restored that by my life being given for you thing that has separated us from the father it's gone i have redeemed everything you are forgiven and your directionality your face your life everything is new and it's in the father your value and your worth your righteousness does not come from anybody else it doesn't come from what anybody thinks It doesn't come from how well you do. It's totally, completely in Christ. There is nothing that you can do to make you more righteous because you didn't make yourself righteous in the first place. There's nothing you can do to earn more grace because there's nothing you did to deserve grace in the first place. Are you with me? This is all because of the Father. It is a gift, and he restores us. He completes us. Not Jerry Maguire saying to another woman, you complete me. No human being was ever created to complete another human being. And the reason why we have such issues with human beings is because we respect them too, especially our spouse, and we hold them in contempt until they follow through and that's why we have people here because somehow their existence has affected my life and now I realize that Jesus has set me free from that from what well let's see if this makes sense Uh, My buddy who wrote this book, and we're selling it out there, it's incredible. It walks you through how the gospel sets us free from all these things so that we can love. But he's having a group, and a husband and wife show up, and there's others that are meeting in his living room, and the guy is grouchy, and his wife has had it with him because he's complained the entire way. And so my friend Derek begins by going, does anybody have an unhealthy emotion? And she elbows her husband and goes, you might as well say it because you're driving us all crazy. He goes, all right, I'm angry. And Derek says, oh, good. So he writes it down. The feeling, the emotion is anger. And he says, why are you angry? Because there is this woman named Sarah at work. You guys know who I'm talking about. And everybody's in the room, we're going, yeah, we know she is the most self-centered, selfish person I've ever met. I can't stand the very sight of her. I, I, she makes the job for me and everybody else just horrible. I, I just wish she was gone and she drives me crazy. And her wife says, his wife says, let me tell you something. I am sick and tired of hearing about her. And so my buddy Derek goes, hey, this is good. He goes, so you're angry. What's the thought that you're thinking? And he says... Sarah should not be selfish. So he writes it up on the board. And everybody goes, yeah. And Derek says, so Sarah shouldn't be selfish. You're right. She shouldn't be. And he goes, okay. So when you think that thought, and she is selfish, it makes you feel how? And he goes, very angry, and I can't stand her. He goes, okay. Well, then how about if we change the thought? The guy says, what are you talking about? He goes, well, how about this? Instead of saying Sarah should be selfish or shouldn't be selfish, we say Sarah should be selfish. Now, I know that my reaction to that change is like, what? It's never right for anybody to be selfish. And that's what he got in the room. Everybody went, no, 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 this no. that's never right. It's never right for somebody to be selfish. And he goes, I understand that. This isn't about saying whether it's right or wrong. But you said that when you think this thought, that Sarah shouldn't be selfish, you get mad when she is selfish. Well, what if we thought Sarah should be selfish, and then she is selfish? Do you get mad? And the guy goes, it's still not right. And he goes, I know it's not just answer my question. He goes, no, I guess if I think that she should be, and she then is, I'm not mad. And he goes, did you try not to be mad? And he goes, no, but this is stupid because no one should be selfish ever. It's wrong. And so everybody in the room was kind of with this guy going, yeah, he's right. How can we justify her behavior? And so Derek, my friend, said, all right. What do you know about Sarah? One of them goes, well, I think she was she was raised in an orphanage and she was passed around by a foster family into foster family. Another one goes, I remember her telling me that for Christmas or her birthdays, she never received any gifts because all the other kids would take them from her. Another one says, you know what? She mentioned one time that she got a dolly for Christmas and she ran away from the party and hid herself in a closet and they found her an hour later crying and clinging to life or death of that baby doll, so afraid that somebody's going to take it from her. The room was kind of quiet. And Derek said, so based on what we know about Sarah's life, should she be selfish? Again, it's not saying it's right, but based on her experience... Should she be selfish? And they all said, yes. And then Derek asked the man who was angry, he goes, are you angry? No, not at all. He goes, did you try not to be angry? Not a bit. He goes, how do you feel now? He said, I have compassion for her. And he said, man, that sounds a lot like Jesus. Mercy. person on this chair is there because of something that happened, and it doesn't have anything to do with you. God is madly in love with this person, just as he is with you. And freedom comes when you and I quit believing that God is on our side, hating those groups that we hate. And to realize that that's not his kingdom, he's madly in love with all of us, and he understands everyone, including you. I said this the last time I was here. Do you remember what the words Jesus said when he was being crucified on the cross as they're pounding the nails into his hands? What does he say? Father, forgive them. Why? Because they don't know what they're doing. And so when you go, ah, he can't forgive No, he's forgiving the very people. He's He's loving the very men who are murdering him. Why? Because they don't understand God's love. So those of us who understand God's love, what would it be like if we, in turn, stopped the gossip? Stopped the telling people they're naked? What if we, in turn, got to know people? What if, in turn, we stopped jumping on the bandwagon and go, hey, let me tell you something else about this person? But we became a little bit more like Jesus and just said, "I guarantee you there's a reason why, and God loves them." I tell you what, you're not going to be a big hit at parties. But it doesn't matter what anybody thinks, does it. The Father is all that matters. And freedom comes from stopping to hate. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for taking care of all of it. I don't have to try to get my completeness from anybody. I'm complete in you. I don't have to hold anybody in contempt for my life because it doesn't have anything to do with me. Their actions don't have anything to do with me. I'm in you. We are in you. We're complete. And Lord... I love it that you said they will know you are my disciples by their love, not by who we boycott, picket, rail against on Facebook, but by our love. May we be marked by mercy. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.